Hello, I'm Matt Baum, and welcome to The Sewers of Paris. We're on a podcast search for the entertainment that changed the lives of queer people. On tonight's episode, Agatha Christie, Are You Being Served?, and Polari. My guest this week is Professor Paul Baker, a writer and linguist whose work includes some fascinating explorations of Polari, the secret 19th century queer language that existed in England a century ago. He's also delved deep into the history of British don't-say-gay laws, gay seafarers, and in an upcoming book about campy queer culture. And in an upcoming book, Campy Queer Culture. Given his expertise in camp, drag stars, and celebrated actresses, I have a feeling that Paul speaks a language in which listeners of this podcast will be particularly fluent. We'll have that conversation in a minute. First, a reminder that I've got a book coming out next year about queer sitcoms. It's called Hi Honey, I'm Homo, and pre-orders are now open. Head over to GaySitcoms.com to get all the details. Also, big thanks to everybody who supports the Sewers of Paris on Patreon. Patrons get hours of exclusive bonus videos about pop culture history, stickers and stuff in the mail, and shoutouts and YouTube videos. Now, here's my conversation with Paul. Well, this week I'm speaking with Paul Baker, professor of English language. He's the author of Fabulosa, Outrageous, the Story of Section 28 and Britain's Battle for LGBT Education, and the upcoming book Camp. Paul, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks very much for having me, Matt. Great to be here. So what is the entertainment that changed your life? Oh, so many things, but I think I'm going to pick Agatha Christie. Um, so um, I grew up in a very small town in the northeast of England in, in the 70s and the 80s. Um, mm-hmm. And it was this, it was a new town and it didn't have very many facilities, uh, lots of green open spaces, which was great if you like to run around. But there was no bookshop. Um, and there was no cinema. Um, you know, we had to make our own entertainment. Um, there was a news agent, a very small news agent, and they had this very small display of books, almost by mistake, I think, or an oversight at the back, kind of mm-hmm. <laughs> with all the packing and stuff. And they, they stocked these Agatha Christie books, um, which I'd never seen before. I remember going into the shop when I was about 12. Um, and they had these very weird looking, quite scary covers, um, you know, sort of this kind of strange kind of art of like a dead fish or something on the front. <laughs> um, and I was kind of, you know, kind of fascinated by these books. I thought, oh, they, these are quite grown up, um, mm-hmm. you know, and I'd been reading in Blyton and, you know, all the kind of the stories set in girls' schools and things like that. Um, and I thought, you know, I'm, I'm you know, I'm too big for this now, so I'm going to read about murders. Um, and I gave him a go. And suddenly, um, you know, I was in this other world, which was completely the opposite of, of Peter Lee, where I grew up. It was this glamorous kind of art deco kind of fantasia, um, very comforting world um, with very kind of fun characters, these kind of retired colonels and actresses. Um, a lot of them set in quite gossipy, quiet, quiet villages in the south of England, a lot of them in quite big mansions, some in London, some in different holiday locations. And apart from the fact that people are trying to kill each other, um, usually for inheritance, it was actually, a, you know, a quite a, a nice, comforting, kind of kind world. Everyone had lovely manners. The mm. men all had very neat moustaches and centre partings and they wore sleeveless jumpers. So I just kind of wanted to be in that Agatha Christie world in a way. It was just, it was just so, so attractive to me. How how foreign did it seem? Like I, I imagine they these are stories about people living um, just in a, in a completely different sort of lifestyle. Totally. I mean, yeah. That she. I mean, she had the characters had servants, and sometimes the servants were suspects, but they didn't really get a lot to do or say. But it was it was mainly you know people from the kind of upper middle class or the or the gentry class things like that. Um, you know, people that I, I would never meet. You know, in, in my my day to day life at all, and you know, don't really meet them that much these days. Um, and, and, you know, they, they were people that she was very familiar with. She wrote 66 novels between 1920 and 1973. So it wasn't just that they were a different social class to me. They, it was a different time period as well. Um, you know, I was born in 72 and she died the year. I think she died sort of quite soon after that. 
So, you know, they were kind of from, from the past. Um, and I, you know, and I was in this new town where everything was brand new. Um, you know, it was, it was a kind of brutalist concrete kind of architecture everywhere. And so these books were kind of telling me about an England um, that, that kind of didn't really exist, you know, anymore. There were kind of glimpses of it in certain places, but there was a kind of historical aspect to it. And it was also maybe Britain, you know, at its best in some ways and, and at its worst in others. Um, so it, but it, so it just did feel so, so alien, but at the same time, there was something that, that spoke to me. Um, and I thought, yeah, I identify with these characters. I want to be like these people, um, apart from the ones who kill each other. You know, it's funny to hear you say that because uh, I had a similar experience with Jeeves and Worcester where I, I was around like, I don't know, 12 or so when the TV series came out. And I was like, oh, my God, this world is so fascinating. And these people are so um, they live such lives of leisure and, and class and sophistication. Uh, and I tried to read the books and I was like, I have no idea what they're talking about, but, <laughs> it, but it must be so sophisticated and classy and intelligent. Uh, and so it really, I mean, it was, it was even, you know, I had the additional layer of it being a different country and, and um, a history that we really in the U S had not been exposed to very much. Mm. Um, but it sort of um, it gave me this sort of perspective on like, oh, there's 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 another way to be. Uh, and it's very heightened and elevated. And that, I think, was one of the reasons it was uh, attractive to me um, for, for you. Like when the with the Agatha Christie novels, did, did, did you have a I don't know, a dream or a goal of, of setting out into the world and, and discovering whatever world this was that you had, you'd. <laughs> It stumbled onto definitely, yeah. I mean, it, it sort of introduced me to places that I, you know, London that I didn't had never been to, um, and 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 then, you know, did different countries. Um, Christy, um, her husband was an archaeologist and um, worked in Egypt, and she, so she wrote, you know, several of her books. She set them in Egypt. So, Death on the Nile is probably one of her most famous books. But there's then the, the, the Orient Express, you know, kind of book, which is kind of set on a, you know, a train, you know, and the idea of being on a train, you know, and sort of sleeping on a train and eating on it. And, you know, rather than the little train journeys that I used to do, um, you know, in, in the local area, you know, it's, that's something that's never really left me. And, you know, I kind of, I sometimes get the sleeper train from London up to Scotland, um, you know, and pretend that I'm on the Orient Express. And I kind of look at all the other kind of passengers in the in the dining lounge and trying to work out which one's going to get murdered and who's mm-hmm. going to be the killer later on. <laughs> well, so what was, uh, I forget the name of the town that you grew up in, but what was your opportunity to um, expand your horizons out of there? So it was, it was Peter Lee, yes. Um, and well, education. My mum my was always incredibly big on, on the importance of education. And we didn't have a lot of money, but we always had lots and lots and lots of books. And in fact, my earliest memory is kind of sitting on my bed, in, being in bed, about the age of about two, and my mum's sitting with me, and there's just hundreds of books all over the bed. She's bought me all these different kind of children's books, like I think they were called Ladybird books, and saying, you know, which one do you want to read? And I said, I want to read them all. And she went, well, okay, we can. And then I, I, then I fell asleep after about the first two pages of one. But I just remember being so happy that she was going to let me read and stay up as long as I wanted reading all these books. So books were, I think, you know, they were so important to my education. You know, you get, you know, you, they help you with, with your imagination, with concentration, with your vocabulary. Um, and it was because, you know, I read so much as a child, I think that, you know, I, got, I was able to get a place at university later on and then, and then leave, you know, go to a, a new town and then, you know, meet different people. And then, you know, kind of your life just changes because of that. So, you know, I think, you know, reading is such a small thing. It's such a simple thing, but it, you know, it has massive consequences. And, you know, and that Agatha was, you know, one of the, the reasons I think why my life changed. So 
good to her. Were there any um, characters? I imagine in, in children's books, these were pretty hard to come by, but characters who were um, queer or it could be understood as, as being coded as queer. You know, for me, it was the book Ferdinand the Bull as a child was. So my parents obtained that book for me, I think, understanding that there was something <laughs> in me that needed that story. Uh, did, did you have any, any characters that resonated with you and, and that you look back and you're like, oh, that was there was sort of an early role model there? Yeah. I mean, she didn't have clearly implant um, kind of stated gay or queer characters because of you know the time um but you know she was clearly aware that you know pe- people existed she knew people mm-hmm. in her own life and she did i think code them into the book and part of the fun i think of these books as well as kind of trying to solve the the details of the murder is kind of also kind of trying to to kind of solve the clues to who might be gay and and, and who isn't um, and that's something which, you know, when I was reading these books, when I was sort of 12, 13, I wasn't so good at doing and, you know, kind of a lot of stuff went over my head. But then looking back at the books and, you know, reading them years later, you kind of think, oh, of course, you know, when you've got these kind of an old lady couple who are living together and they bicker constantly like an old married couple, um, you know, you kind of figure out, yeah, that they, they probably were, a, you know, in, in a relationship, but just no, you know, everyone in the village didn't talk about that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, but they were, you know, they were part of the community and highly regarded. Um, so you've got, there are actually two of these female couples in the book called The Murder is Announced, which is one of my favorite. Oh, Christy yes, books. mine as well. I love yeah. that one. It's so bonkers, isn't it? The story, the, the kind of the premise of it. Just mm-hmm. there's a an article, like a, an advert appears in the local newspaper, and it's like a murder is announced and will take place tonight at seven o'clock, and it gives the address, um, and that's it. So all these people turn up thinking it's going to be a game, and then the lights go out, and one of them actually does get shot, um, and the, and then kind of that's the the whole premise of it. So it's, it's completely mad, but but um, a wonderful book, and it's got these two sets of women who are who are kind of living together in it. Um, so that, that, that's something really kind of, you know, clear that she did. My favourite, though, I think, and it's not a book, it's um, one of the plays that she wrote, which is called The Mousetrap, um, which has been on, almost constantly in London since 1952. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a brief break, I think, during COVID. And I've seen it several times. Um, I have a place in London and I live quite close to the theatre where it's on at. So it's a very easy thing for me to take relatives to, um, you know, when, when they visit me. Um, and in particularly if I've got um, I've got a lot of nephews and nieces, um, you know, aged about sort of eight, between eight and twelve at the moment, and I always offer them a cash prize if they can guess the killer. Um, you know, it's a bit of a kind of you know incentive uh-huh. to, to them to keep kind of you know kind of focused on what's happening. Um, you know, and they take it ever so seriously, um, uh-huh. but they never they never get it right. But so I always manage to keep my money. <laughs> They're always quite quite disappointed at the end and quite kind of rueful. But um, you know, you have to learn, don't you? Really, I think these things. But yes, the mousetrap. It's one of the campest of all of her her works, um, and there are several queer characters in it. There's a there's a young woman called Miss Casewell who lives abroad and is possibly a socialist and is possibly writing a love letter to a friend called Jess. Um, and then there's a young man called Christopher Wren. Now he is, you know, he's kind of like camp amazing he flits around the stage when he arrives like a butterfly he's screaming over all the different kinds of furniture commenting on stuff and um you know he wants to know whether they've got wax flowers in this house and then when the owners say they don't he gets very upset and then when this quite hunky policeman arrives halfway through he just kind of almost faints you know he's kind of so attracted to him and he says oh it's terribly hearty and the other characters really dislike him a lot of them they they, they refer to him as um peculiar and extraordinary uh-huh. mentally un- one person says he's mentally unbalanced and he must have come from a mental asylum and it's kind of a very telling indictment that 
you know, he's basically very common a garden camp behavior. But within within the kind of nineteen forties, this gets interpreted as, as insanity and possibly even a, a defining characteristic of someone who's a killer. Um, and I think that's just hilarious. The idea that because you're a camp, you know, you, you're you're possibly mad and also a killer. Um, but I think I think Christie knew what she was doing. I think she's kind of reflecting that people of the time were quite prejudiced towards you know people who were clearly camp and, and just couldn't work out what it meant, you know, that, that they were gay or anything like that. So she's making some of her characters gay. She's making some of them homophobic or just ignorant. And I always think it's interesting, you know, thinking about how the audiences of that period would have, would have reacted to somebody like Christopher Wren, whether they would have thought, oh, yeah, he's just, you know, he's a camp gay man or whether they would have thought he was the killer because he was so strange. Mm. <laughs> so things like that, I think, are quite quite kind of interesting um, and, and give her novels depth. We certainly have um, something comparable here on television with, um, you know, the the, the 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 fussy photographer or whatever, or um, in particular, there was kind of a period of killer lesbians where there were just killer lesbians all over television um, around the 60s and 70s. <laughs> uh, for some reason, it's just like brief obsession. But uh, and the, there's this show, um, what was it called? The Streets of San Francisco, I think, where it had um, a, a character who had... Um, what could be charitably interpreted as uh, multiple personalities uh, interpreted dramatically. Uh, and one of them is a, a, a drag persona who wants to kill uh, her rivals. Um, and it's just a, like, like you're describing, like just kind of a ludicrous interpretation of, of what the world of drag is um, mm. with, with this dash of like, well, there's something terribly wrong about this person. So they, they must be a murderer. Yeah, that's just it. I think you know that 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 period. There was just so much kind of like, if you're gay, you're like you're either going to be the killer or you're going to be the victim. Um, mm-hmm. And I think one of the nice things about Christie is that she doesn't go down that route that much. I think you know she has she has these kind of that they're unmarked, they're implied to be gay or, or queer, but gen- generally she doesn't you know use that as the as, as you know she doesn't have have them killed off or she doesn't have them as the killer usually. I I, I don't want to spoil the. Um, any anyone's kind of enjoyment of the you know the endings of the story, so I won't say any more than that. But but yeah, I think I think she I think the stories for me. I mean, there are lots of things that I find wrong with the stories um, now, um, and it's nice to see you know kind of in some of the kind of updated films. There was an update of Death in the Nile recently, and they had um, you know more black characters in, and, and they actually did make one of the, the lesbian relationships kind of um, explicit mm. in it. So I think it's nice that you know you can take these as a starting point, and then you can kind of update them. From you know the kind of sensibilities of a modern audience, um, you know, and that doesn't take away from the original book or you know the earlier films that were made. It just it's just another way I think of getting you know kind of contemporary audiences to to engage with things, um, which is great. I know, I've got some friends and they won't watch anything if it wasn't made before 2010. Um, <laughs> they, they just refuse, and so like if this is the only way they're going to get to know about Agatha Christie. I'm I'm okay with that. <laughs> You know, I think something that's really lovely about her work, whether the the written work, the plays, the um, the novels, the plays and uh, adaptations, is they do retain something you were talking about earlier, a, a level of camp that varies from version to version. Um, but it's certainly, you know, I'm thinking of The Mirror Cracked with um, uh, Elizabeth Taylor. Elizabeth Taylor. Uh, you know, such a, like, you've got so many um, grand women sniping at each other in that um, or you know it, that the new Death on the Nile, which I really adored, uh, and I, I love what, how they interpreted that and updated it in some ways, and um, it still it, you know it retains uh, quite a lot of silliness. <laughs> but they did the yeah. very straight face. 
Definitely. I mean, I think I think the kind of seventies was the you know that that was the era I think of you know super camp anyway. And then you get when these films are made, and particularly the Hercule Poirot ones with Peter Ustinov, I think were the you know the, the best mm. of all. Um, and mm. again, you know they they you know they, they were made in the seventies. They're taking kind of the original books and they're changing them for the period, just as we do now. So you know they're, they're enjoyable in a different kind of way. My favorite and, and the one that me and my friends you know who are kind of a, fans of Christie is Evil Under the Sun. Um, I don't know if that's one you've seen. Um, no, I haven't a, seen it, that one. Oh, I, you must see it. It's a it's a Hercule Poirot one. It's, so it's Peter Ustinov. It's on an island, um, and it's got you know an, an amazing cast. It's got um, Dinah Rigg, um, Maggie Smith is in it. Oh, um, yes, of course. I've seen the I've seen the trailer for the it. Trailer. And every time I say I've got to see this, there's a polka dot dress that just like stays but, with me from the trailer. It's like the women all look like they've made their outfits out of discarded wrappers from a chocolate box, <laughs> you know, kind of th- those kind of like very, very uh-huh. shiny, colorful kind of wrappers you get, um, you know, at Christmas when you buy chocolates. Mm-hmm. Um, and the whole thing just feels like a very early pilot episode of RuPaul's Drag Race mm-hmm. where they haven't worked out the format yet pro- properly and they're kind of doing one of their little plays. Uh-huh. It's just bonkers. It really is. I mean, there's a, the whole murder kind of hinges on whether someone is wearing a bathing hat or not at a particular <laughs> point in time. You know, and if, she, and if the girl isn't wearing the bathing hat, the murder isn't going to take place. And mm-hmm. the clues are just insane. Um, Dinah Rigg is just amazing, though. She wears these turbans and these huge sun hats. And she's got this teenage daughter, who stepdaughter called Linda, who she's horrible to throughout. Um, and she says things like, um, do stop standing there like a cough drop. And then, um, and then she just scrams Cinderella to her, and then the poor little girl runs away. She says, "Oh, she runs like a dromedy with dropsy." <laughs> so just, it's like, who came up with these lines? Then they weren't in the book. Ah, um, oh, that's obviously some, oh. some somebody who wrote wrote this with a you know a certain sensibility. There's so much camp and culture that's appealing to 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 queer readers and, and viewers in in so much of Agatha Christie's work, um, but also, like you said, not a lot of gay characters, or not at least explicitly. Um, what sort of you know culture have you have you encountered that uh, you know was was meaningful to you that where there's maybe someone a little bit more um, d- demonstrably queer? So this yeah definitely. Um, as I said before, the way I grew up didn't have a, a cinema, um, but we did have a television, and um, you know that was kind of my window onto the world. This little TV set in the corner of, of our living room, um, and I really you know I, I watched so much television when I was growing up. There was only about three or four channels in the UK at the time. But the quality of what we're showing was extremely good, I think, compared to now. And, and most evenings you could watch a you know a good film or a sitcom or a drama or something. And there was a series of, of sitcoms that like came out in the sort of um, 70s and 80s by a, a kind of a team of writers, David Croft, Jimmy Perry and Jeremy Lloyd. And, and they did these kind of very, very popular ensemble sitcoms. There was Dad's Army, It Ain't Half Hot Mum, Heidi High, Alo Alo and Are You Being Served? Mm-hmm. Um, and nearly all of these these sitcoms had at least one regular male character who was quite camp and who was hinted um, to be gay. Um, and in fact, I remember one of the first times I actually realised that homosexuality existed, or what it you know or he- what it was, was the watching the opening credits of Ain't Half Hot Mum. In I think it must have been about nineteen seventy seven, so I was probably about five years old. And you know, they've got these credits. They start with these these men who are in the army and they're kind of putting on this performance. Um, and they've got this kind of sergeant major who, who's kind of watching them. And he's this very kind of butch, kind of angry man played by Windsor Davis. And he's kind of mouthing puffs, puffs at them, <laughs> um, which is a kind of British slang word for for, for you know get homosexuals. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so that was, you know, that was the word that I first learned to be associated with it. And and I knew it was a bad thing to be, um, you know, by their standards. And it also meant kind of men who were, you know, in, effeminate and kind of in love with one another in some way. Um, but, you know, so it's kind of it was interesting kind of learning learning about homosexuality from these sitcoms. Mm. Um, you know, they were kind of a template for me um, about what being gay was like. And one that, you know, because these guys were so camp, um, you know, and they wanted, and a lot of them dressed in drag a lot of the time. Um, part of that I couldn't identify with. You know, I thought this is not what I want to be when I grow up. Um, but other bits of it, the kind of the sense of humor um, and the wit, um, I thought, yeah, yeah, I like that. I, I, I can, I can do that. I'll, I can try that anyway. <laughs> so, so yeah, they were they were fun. Um, you know, and, and and very watchable, and still are. You know, hearing you describe these, it's so strange that. Um, so little of that media has made the jump between the US and, and the UK. Um, like a title, like I have to say eight half hot mum is such a, it sounds like a made up title for a parody of a British sitcom of a certain era. <laughs> like it sounds like a joke, but I, I yes. also like, I'm a fan of, of a low, a low. I think like, it's such a brilliant um, concept and such a funny show. Like somehow that made its way to me, but, yeah. but none of those others, yeah. Uh, none of those others did, with the exception of I think Alolo uh, and and also um, Are You Being Served? Yeah, uh, was another one that that somehow made its way over here, mm. but the others didn't. Well, Ain't Half, half Hotman um, was 1974 to 81. It was sort of set in a, a kind of an army camp, um, I think in Burma or some, somewhere. Um, British men and they were kind of an entertainment troupe. It never gets shown now on on on, on TV. It has quite some quite racist. Kind of uh, and homophobic kind of um, kind of representations in it, including use of blackface. Um, so it would just never, never, ever get get shown. Um, you sure. Know. Um, but some some of the other ones, you know, it's kind of it's a shame that they didn't make it across. Um, Heidi High was a was a really popular one in, um, in from 80, 1980 to eighty eight, and that was set in a holiday camp at the start of the sixties. Mm. Um, and there were there were kind of a, there was a kind of a, a married couple in it called Barry and Yvette. Sorry, Barry and Yvonne Stuart Hargreaves. Um, and they played these dancing instructors and they were incredibly snobby. They thought they were too good to work at this holiday camp. And they were, you know, very stuck up and they walked around like they were sucking on lemons the whole time. But they kind of, <laughs> the joke was that Barry was obviously gay. Um, you know, it was this kind of loveless relationship that they were in and she was kind of his beard. Um, and, and he actually, he's written out, he leaves her before the series ends. And there's all these kind of allusions to how he's been in trouble with the police and he can't join the army and things like that. So, um, you know, they're not the main characters of it, but they kind of, you know, there's some representation, even if it's not not the best <laughs> type of representation. You know, it sounds a bit like um, the all the the you know up, up Pompeii and that that sort of you know sort of class of film. And it also um, hearing you describe. Um, uh, NF Hot Mom, it reminds me of uh, Privates on Parade. Like, it sounds like it's sort of from that sort of school of, of comedy. Very much so, yeah. This kind of troupe, um, of, you know, of, of kind of like stereotypes. Mm-hmm. And, and they all have like a role to play. And, 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 and then you get sort of these recurring jokes and catchphrases, um, you know, and things like that. And, and then everything kind of resets at the end of each episode as well. So you don't, nobody learns or grows you know, in, in, in these kind of sitcoms. <laughs> they just kind of all go back to how they are. Um, sure. And also, I think different maybe from American um, comedy, British comedy is often about failure. Um, and, oh, you know, yeah. British people love to see people fail. Like, we have to see people try, think they're going to get somewhere and break out, you know, and, and win, and then they fail at the last minute. And so a lot of these kind of sitcoms have that kind of failure arc 
you know, where you're really rooting for a character and then and then at the last minute they don't get what they want and then and then it, and it ends often quite sadly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's so strange because I, the only thing I could think of that we have here is um, a series of National Lampoon movies, uh, often with Chevy Chase, um, National yes. Lampoon's Vacation and Christmas and all those uh, holiday. I, but uh, there's so many. I'm thinking of like the Carry On films, which have like, just like very much like National Lampoon. Yes. Many of the same actors, not mm. always the same characters, and always like just things going wrong, 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 wrong. And for some reason, it's so much fun to watch. Yes, yes, very much so. Yeah, and it, it's nice how these shows, you know, they, they use the same actors in them and, and, and they're kind of ensemble pieces. A bit like American Horror Story now, I think that kind of mm. is probably the closest thing. Um, and that, that has kind of quite a lot of camp and humor in it too. My favorite one, though, is um, Are You Being Served? Which um, I know, I know is popular in Australia, and I, I do know some Americans who have watched it. And I think it was shown maybe on PBS. Um, yeah. So this is one set in a, a clothing um, floor of a large department store, which is actually based on a, um, a real department store called Simpsons of Piccadilly, which closed about twenty years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just it's it's still it's still shown quite a lot in the UK on various channels, but everything about it is just it's just perfect. Um, it's got this wonderful theme tune. Um, you've got this kind of female lift operator um, and she's kind of announcing what's available on each floor and you've got these kind of strings in the background and she's kind of saying like ground floor, perfumery, stationery and leather goods, wigs and haberdashery, kitchenware and food going up and and then it goes on to the next floor and the next floor and whenever I'm in the lift I have to kind of restrain myself <laughs> from kind of saying these words because they're, they're kind of ingrained upon my consciousness. <laughs> you know, somehow, amazingly, I, I, I've talked very little, perhaps not at all, about Are You Being Served? Um, in, in part because I think a lot of Americans haven't seen it, um, except for the ones who are fortunate enough to, you know, catch it at, at some strange hour on PBS. Uh, but it does have like a, a fantastically, not just a, a a character that can be read as gay, but um, w- without doing a lot of work, um, <laughs> but also just some really... A, a lot of weirdos that I think um, are, are particular. I'm thinking of Mrs. Slocum, uh, that are... <laughs> Um, just there's some quality that is appealing to uh, to gay men in particular. Very much so. Yeah, the weirdos is the right word, I think. Yeah, so they're all kind of like losers and failures or, you know, kind of misfits in some way. And they're kind of all working in this floor of a department store and they all kind of bump off on each other as well. And, you know, and that's often the cause of misunderstandings. And Mrs. Slocum is this kind of middle-aged kind of matronly woman. Um, you know, she's... She's from the North of England. She talks with kind of a fake posh accent, but you can sort of really tell that, you know, if you prod her a bit, you sort of, you, you realise, you know, she's not really from the social class she pretends to be. And she dyes her hair in these outrageous colours, like real drag queen style mm-hmm. colours of hair. And the hair's really big. I think she did really dye it in the first couple of seasons. And then it, it started to, you know, get problems. And so then she started wearing these wigs mm-hmm. instead. And then there's this whole kind of, um, kind of thing around around the, in, the innuendos about she's got a pet cat called Tiddles and so she's saying things like um, you know I need to get home if my pussy's not attended to by eight o'clock I'll be stroking it for the rest of the evening and there's just every episode there's a pussy joke you mm-hmm. know and it's kind of it's just so obvious what what it is you know kind of people screaming with laughter and um, you know there's no, it's it's one of those innuendos that isn't an innuendo really mm-hmm. it's just so obvious what it's meant I think only the the most innocent child probably would not be able to kind of decode what's going on with that phrase. But they got away with it, and this was the 70s. Yeah, yeah, it's remarkable. And, you know, and they tried, very much like Faulty Towers, they tried, like, I think a couple times, and finally made it to um, Beans of Boston was the U.S. version. 
uh, uh, that yeah. had a sort of an analog. I think it was Alan Hughes who played the um, the 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 unfree character, and um, Americans were just like, "What on earth is this? I don't want this at all." <laughs> Yes. Well, maybe the moment had passed. I don't, I don't know. I mean, it did, I, I think it did quite well in Australia. They had a version of it there as well, which I've mm. seen on YouTube. But um, the, it, it, there was controversy um, in the UK quite a lot around this, this, the gay character in it, Mr. Humphreys. Um, mm-hmm. So he's, he's, he's played by John Enman. Um, and he was really the, you know, the kind of star of the show very, very quickly. Um, you know, so he's this kind of very, very kind of light-footed camp guy who worked in men's work. Um, you know, he says, I'm free whenever anyone, you know, if, particularly if there's a male customer waiting to get served as well. Mm-hmm. And there's that kind of suggestiveness about that as well. He's actually quite quite a kind of wise character in some ways. I think he's a bit more grounded and self-aware than some of the other co-workers. And gradually, I think he became the star of the show. Um, I know they, they get one of the the executives at the BBC tried to get him written out after about five episodes. Oh, and really? He said, said, get rid of the, he said, get rid of the puff. Um, <gasps> but they, 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 they kind of fought back and they were like, no, you know, if, if we, if he goes, we go, the writers. So, <laughs> so, so he kind of stayed in. Um, and it, you know, this, this was a show that got 20 million viewers, which, you know, you know, compared to now that's, that's massive um, viewing figures for the UK. And John Inman, you know, became this huge celebrity, um, you know, in the late seventies because of this show. And he was making, you know, quite a lot of money. He was going around making public appearances in different theatres around around the UK. Um, but and and that's when I think people started to get quite quite cross with him. Um, so there was a kind of hint of this. There was a, another TV comedy sketch show which was a lot more political, called End of Part One, um, and they did parodies of TV shows. And they did one a parody of Are You Being Served, and they changed the lyrics of a theme tune. So they said. Ground floor puffers, always taking inside legs, mincing round of silver hair and camping up like fairies, going up. And so you've got this kind of kind of clear kind of uh-huh. making fun of that character and, and, and calling it a stereotype. Then you get um, members of a, a group called the Campaign for Homosexual Equality, um, you know, starting to picket um, John Inman. So when he's turning up at these these theatres and for his performances you know they're they're kind of standing outside and they're handing out pamphlets and things um to to members of the theatre you know but you know basically saying you know we you know this is not good and we don't like his camp clowning um you know there was there was there was one he one demonstration at Wembley Conference Centre and they gave out leaflets that said um tonight you're going to lose to laugh at an act which many homosexuals think is no joke no joke to lose your job, your family, your custody of your children. No joke to be attacked and ridiculed. Many gays have been physically attacked. There have been three brutal murders in London this year. So they, you know, so the kind of gay rights groups of the 70s thought he was kind of offensive and he was like kind of like an Uncle Tom figure kind of keying into, you know, jokes about kind of stereotypes about gay people and, you know, for straight people to laugh at. Um, and he wasn't kind of furthering, you know, the cause of, you know, equality or a good representation. Um, and, and, this, and this kind of went on and on. It kind of happened when he went to New Zealand, even, and the other side of the world, he got picketed and there were lots of articles written about him in, in the gay magazines and newspapers um, of, the, of the 70s as well. Um, and it's kind of interesting looking back on that. Um, you know, it was kind of a moment, I think, almost in, in, in history, because I don't think those kind of characters get that kind of, you know, treatment these days um, as much. Um, and I think maybe, you know, kind of at the time there were, there weren't many gay characters. So he was kind of doing a lot of the heavy lifting. He was standing in for all gay men everywhere. And I think maybe, maybe there was a bit of internalized homophobia driving some of the, 
the criticisms of him as well. Um, you know, there was a t- you know some some gay men are a bit like Mr. Humphreys, and that's that's great as far as I'm concerned. I think they're, they're wonderful, mm-hmm. but I think. You know, if 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 that's seen as the only way that you can be gay, then obviously that's that's very problematic. And it, yeah, it, it sounds like he was sort of in a the actor was sort of in an impossible position where you know, on one hand, it's very difficult to put queer characters on television in the 1970s um, in any genre except one where where things are so silly and lighthearted. Yeah, but also this is this is a genre where you know there's there's really no opportunity to do a serious show about gay bashings on Are You Being Served? That would no. be so completely out of place. <laughs> but what, what show is it going to be on at, at, at that time? Yeah, yeah. So I think I think it was you know it was kind of, it was hard for him. Um, they kind of downplayed that he was gay. They said he was camp, but they kind of they right they never really came out and said that he was gay. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it was kind of interesting that around this time you get this kind of clone look coming into fashion with a lot of uh-huh. gay men in the UK mm-hmm. kind of trying to look like Thomas Finland's cartoon characters, um, you know. And, and then you've got these kind of gay discos full of fancy dressed lumberjacks and motorcycle gangs. And gay men kind of like not wanting to just be masculine, but to be like the most masculine person ever, even more masculine yeah. than, you know, heterosexuals. And you get, you know, the kind of t- turning the dial all the way up to 11, which mm-hmm. kind of breaks the needle and kind of you swing back into kind of camp territory because, you know, I don't think everyone can pull off the act. You know, if you put in a black leather jacket, you know, and get scowl, you know, and, and try to look kind of butch. You know, I think a lot of these men, when they opened their mouths and you know, they were talking about, you know, Princess Margaret's affair with Roddy Llewellyn in the 70s or the soft furnishings at Bieber's flagship store in Kensington High Street or whether <laughs> Ding a Dong should have won the 1975 Eurovision Song Contest. You know, things like that, those kinds of topics of conversation, which I would find fascinating to talk about, but they're not going to make you butch, um, you know, even if you are wearing the, the butch drag. <laughs> so I think, I think there was a bit of kind of failure there, which is, which is kind of interesting and funny in itself. Yeah, well, I mean, that was certainly the case um, here as well. There's actually, um, are you familiar with the with the movie um, Straight Jacket? And I have to qualify it, not <laughs> the straight jacket that isn't the, the, not the Joan Crawford one. I know um, the Joan Crawford one. I basically yes. know the one you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So Richard Day was, a, was actually a guest on the show a couple of years ago, uh, wrote this and directed this um, film about, oh, actually, I think he just wrote it. Um, Basically, it's set in the 1950s. It's sort of the Rock Hudson story. Uh, Hollywood star threatened to be outed, marries uh, a secretary. Um, mm. And at one point, there's this denial of his homosexuality where um, it's presented to the the woman who's his wife. And, and she says, he can't be gay. He works out constantly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, there's like, I think you mentioned some internalized homophobia. And, and there certainly was was that in the 70s of like, oh, no, 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 no. we're not we're not this this sort of camp brand that, that the, the straights think we are. And that also reminds me of the um, resentment that I sometimes hear from from queer people when when they come out and someone says, oh, we knew it all along. And there's yes. sort of um, a resistance to, well, no, you didn't. And I'm, I'm going to make sure that uh, that I'm not what you think. <laughs> yeah. Um, which sometimes can be, you know, a good way to re-examine yourself. But other times uh, I think people adopt like, you know, the, the masculine drag, which is maybe perhaps not entirely natural for, for everybody. No, no. And I think, you know, after after John Inman, when you move on to the 80s and the 90s, you, you get more of these kind of, you know, there's kind of almost a rebellion in the media where you get these kind of more straight acting characters who are gay. So I remember Dynasty had Stephen, um, mm-hmm. you know, who was, you know, he was kind of, you know, blonde and, you know, he was he wasn't super butch, but he he, he wasn't camp either. And then in the nineties, you get Matt in Melrose Place as well, um, who was a kind of similar kind of character. They're, they're kind of nice characters, um, 
and gentle, but they're not they're not camp with it. And then in the UK, we had Colin in EastEnders, um, played by Michael Cashman, who you know who kind of wore sensible shirts, and mm-hmm. you know you, you, people didn't guess that he was gay as well. And you know these characters, you know they were kind of nice, but they didn't, you know they were they weren't super memorable, and they certainly weren't the kind of most fun characters of those soap operas. And you, I, I often felt it was you know it was nice to see that representation, but it felt a bit like it was ticking a box and not you know didn't want to kind of tread on anyone's toes. And I think it's nicer now that you know when you, when you see gay representation or queer representation in the media, there's a whole range of you know the whole spectrum or rainbow of different kind of ways of, of you know of, of being gay. Um, it's not just camp or, or butch or, or anything. Um, and I think that's nicer. Um, you know, it shows you that there's no one way which is good or bad or preferable. There's just there's just a lot of ways, and so you've got a lot of choices or a lot of role models um, mm-hmm. you know to go with, which is wonderful. So we have come an awful long way, I think, which is good. You've done an awful lot of research and scholarship and writing about um, queer culture and history uh, in the UK. How did that become a, a point of focus for you? Well, I, start, I started with my PhD topic, um, oh, going back quite, about 25 years now, which was um, looking at this form of gay language called Polari, um, which was um, spoke, spoken um, you know, in secret contexts by, by, in gay communities in, in the sort of 50s and 60s. Um, as, as, a, as a form of, of secrecy, um, but then it became more of a kind of way of expressing identity, um, you know, and, and being funny as well. Um, and it became quite famous on a, on a BBC radio comedy show called Round the Horn, which I think you've talked about maybe in one mm-hmm. of your other other episodes. So I won't, won't talk about it too much. Um, so yeah, I think that got, kind of got me into looking at gay history, um, and then. And then um, Later on, I, I looked at um, a law that was passed in the UK called um, Section 28, which was um, a law that was passed in 1988, which stopped local authorities from promoting homosexuality as what they called a pretended family relationship. So it was kind of the first "don't say gay" law, um, and, and you know, Britain has the distinction of, of being the one that invented that that, that kind of law mm-hmm. back in the 80s. Um, and so I, I wrote a book about about that, which came out earlier this year. Which kind of tells the story of, of how it came about and and how eventually um, you know, activists um, you know rebelled against it and how, how eventually they got rid of it, um, and that was something that was very I suppose relevant to me growing up. Um, the law kind of came out when I was you know a teenager, and I remember on my sixteenth birthday um, I was watching the, the the news and I was eating some birthday cake and there was a kind of invasion um, on the on the on the news. This was the national news live. And then a group of women who were kind of protesting about this law, they invaded the BBC news. And you can kind of hear them screaming, stop section 28 in the background. And the news, one of the newsreaders is kind of sitting on one of them and kind of off screen. Um, and then the, day, the next day, the law actually kind of came into being. It passed. So there was, you know, there was a lot going on and, uh, around that time. Um, a lot of homophobia in the press as well. Um, you know, and I'm kind of 16, kind of not, not really sure what, what, what I am or, you know, what, what, when I'm going to tell people I'm gay or whether I ever will. Um, and, and, and it wasn't a particularly good time, I think, to, to, to be a teenager. Um, so I think, you know, in a way, in some ways, writing the book was, was quite kind of um, cathartic in a way, kind of revisiting that period and trying to make sense of it and also trying to make a bit of a joke of some of it as well, trying to see the funny side of some of it too. Yeah. And, you know, ultimately, um, Section 28 re- repealed, although, you know, I'm not going to say like, and, and everything was fine after yeah, no, that. It wasn't. No, no, <laughs> never say never. It could come back as well. Yeah. Yeah. But there are a lot of lessons, I think, in that history. It's one of the reasons that I'm so fascinated by this topic is, is there's a lot that can be learned from those struggles of the past, the successes, the failures, whatever. 
Um, and and also just you know the the sharing of culture and connecting and and the representation and acknowledgement that that we do exist in certain numbers and um, you, you know that that there are a lot of different ways to be queer. I think is um, a, a really important um, a, a, a really important practice and one that was that was really um, that, that that section twenty eight in particular clamped down on. Um, but and also the don't say gay laws that we're still dealing with in the U S. You know, it really cuts the legs off of uh, out from under the, um, you know, any sort of, of further liberation if, if we can't talk about it at all. Very much so. And I remember at the time um, there was a, a television, like a television film um, made for TV movie, a British one, which which came out. I think it, it was shown after kind of a couple of months before the bill passed. So I think it was March um, and then a bill passed in, in, in the end of May. So it was, it was a film called Two of Us, um, and it was a love story about two working class boys of school leaving age. Um, it's it's kind of it's one of those things where you go to any gay film festival and like eighty percent of the films are about you know two boys you know it's suddenly that no one was the same that summer again and they were both like kind of sixteen year old or seventeen and you know they, they discover they're gay and you know um, so it isn't, the story itself isn't isn't especially original although back in the eighties it was um, and. This was meant to be shown on on one of the one of the channels, BBC Two, as part of a kind of school's daytime slot. Um, mm-hmm. But because of all of the kind of furore around Section Twenty Eight, um, the executives at the BBC, you know, decided, oh, you know, we better not show it. The newspapers were starting to complain, you know, saying, yeah, how how dare the BBC screen this play? It's really irresponsible. Um, it should stay away, locked in a closet. So, in the end, they showed it at I think half past eleven at night. Um, but there was such a kind of fuss about it, um, you know, in the newspapers that I I kind of learned that it that it existed. So I remember kind of staying up late that night um, and watching it downstairs on our TV. My parents were kind of sleeping upstairs, and I, I had the volume on really really low, um, you know, and kind of was really close up to the TVs in case kind of it woke them up when they came down. Um, and it, it was you know it was really it was a very um, important I think thing for me to watch because it it, it didn't show camp characters in a kind of comedy and realistic situation it just showed ordinary kind of working class boys like me um you know who were about around my age and you know they, they kind of they had this relationship they fell in love um and it was the kind of relationship by that point you know that I was really thinking about having that I wanted I wanted something like that and I knew you know kind of deep down that that was what I was going to kind of end up looking for um and it's not you know it's not a particularly explicit um, kind of representation. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a kind of bit in a shower in a shower at the local swimming baths when they kind of realise that they're kind of attracted to each other, and then they run away to a holiday, and they end up befriending this girl who's homeless, and they let her share their tent, and so that she, they can't even have sex because there's this girl sleeping between them in the tent. Um, and it's it's very 1980s. There's lots of saxophone and synthesizer music, and then it <laughs> and then it kind of ends. When I was watching it, I remember kind of being really surprised because it ends with one of the the young men, his girlfriend shows up and then they go off together and then they leave the other one alone. He gets kind of nothing. And then, and so that's it. They kind of, one of them goes back to being straight and then one of them kind of, you know, ends up alone. And so I was like, well, that's not how I wanted that to turn out. <laughs> I was really, really kind of disappointed. I'd been enjoying it all the way through. Um, and then later on, I found that um, they changed the ending. They'd cut, they'd cut mm. a final scene, which shows the guy actually taking his girlfriend back to the train station. He sees her, sees her on a train, she leaves, and then he runs back to the beach to be with the other guy and kind of calls his name from a cliff top and then jumps down to him. So there was a happy ending. But just because of the 
the kind of the the kind of crisis around Section Twenty Eight at the time, the BBC kind of lost their, lost it. You know, they bottled out and they, they kind of changed the ending, um, to sh- you know, to show that gay people don't end up living happily ever after, um, which you know wasn't what I wanted to hear from the time, mm-hmm. and it wasn't until nineteen ninety, a couple of years later, that they did actually show the full version. Um, you know, so I, I finally did get to see them, you know, with their happy ending, even though I had to wait two years. Gosh, what a metaphor for the the straights uh, denying us the happy ending for so totally, long. Totally, yeah, yeah. It, it was it was real, you know, <laughs> what they wow. did. Yeah, yeah. It was a strange time to to grow up, I think, and you know, I, I, I'm always quite kind of. I kind of a bit tolerant of people my age um, <laughs> when I meet them if they're gay because I think they've probably been through quite a bit. Mm. Well, so tell me about um, the book you've got coming up, Camp. Uh, what can people look forward to? Yeah, so it's 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 called Camp, um, the story of the attitude that conquered the world. Um, it's by Footnote Press, hoping to have it out um, by next um, by, by June, but, you know, in time for Gay Pride. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a kind of it's a kind of history of of, of where Camp came from. Um, kind of starting off in the 17th century and looking at Versailles, the palace, and um, Louis the King, um, and then kind of going through different different time periods and different places as well. Because I've tried to try to make the book, um, you know, qu- quite a diverse story. A lot of people who've written about camp in the past have kind of written about it from, you know, a very kind of monocultural, quite wide perspective. And um, you know, I I didn't want to do that. I, w- I wanted to kind of take take into account different kinds of stories, different voices and different places around the world as well. So, you know, I've talked about things like um, people, people like Josephine Baker um, mm. and, and, and the cakewalks, um, you know, in, in, in the 19th century in, in the US on, on the different plantations. And, and, and also how you get, you know, these drag houses starting um, being formed by, by um, black um, men in, in the 19th century. And there's this whole progression you know, from these drag houses, which we, we're, we're still seeing, um, you know, with, with, in, in, with the um, shows like um, films like um, Paris is Burning and then RuPaul's Drag Race as well. So I hadn't realized that these drag houses, you know, they go back, you know, over a century, um, mm. you know, to the 19th century. And it was absolutely fascinating to kind of track, you know, the, their history and, and realize just how important they've been in so many people's lives. Oh, that sounds fantastic. I, I, you could not write a book that is more um, up my alley. So I'm, I'm very <laughs> <Great>. excited, <laughs> very excited to to pick this up when it comes out. And where can folks find if they want to read more about your work or, or your books? Where should they go to find you online? Um, yeah, so but books are available. Um, you know, you can get them from Amazon. I think probably the easiest easiest place to get. Um, although I would say if you have a you know a kind of a local um, queer bookstore. Um, or, or one which is, you know, within a, a train ride or something away. I'd always say try and support that rather than something like Amazon to get to get the books. Because um, um, I, you know, a lot, a lot. I think most of them would, would still hold those books because they're quite new still. Um, or if not, you can always order them from there. And that's supporting, you know, the, those those shops. I think they're incredibly important. Um, you know, some have closed in recent years, and that's that's a real shame. Um, mm-hmm. So it's it's always something that you know, when I'm, whenever I'm in a city, I always try and visit. Um, you know, a queer bookstore and buy something. And, and also, if I've read something and I think I'm not going to read this again, I always kind of donate it back to the shop as well. Um, you know, so, so trying to do that, I think, is really important. Thanks to Paul for joining me, and thanks to you for listening, and thanks to everybody who makes the sewers of Paris possible on Patreon. Head over to patreon.com slash to support the show and get backer rewards. Check out my upcoming book, Hi Honey, I'm Homo, for a history of queer characters on American sitcoms. That's at gaysitcoms.com. 
And visit my YouTube channel for stories about pop culture at youtube.com slash mattbaum. And keep up with more of my projects through my weekly newsletter. You can sign up for that at mattbaum.com. The theme song for The Suze of Paris is Parisian from filmmusic.io by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0. And until next time, croissant.